Hello everybody, good day, good evening and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit show where you ask me the questions and I answer your questions. So before we begin, let me greet all of you. First of all, wishing you all a very happy Ram Navami. And I can see Nihal, Tamagna, Prarthana, the oldie, Tejas, Akshit, Patrick, Jane, Srishti, Aditya, Shubhangi, Pawan, Kumar, Satinder Singh, Aditi, Praful, Priya, the Chess J Priya, Pratishwar, Chiching, Shubhang, Kunal, Shivansh, Ashima, Nilesh, Ayan, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, wherever you are in the world. And let's get right into it. Let's get into the questions. As always, you've got you've asked lots of questions. I have picked a bunch of these. And let's see how many I can answer today. I'll try and answer as many as possible. So let us begin with question number one. What is question number one? This is by Alex. You speak a lot about Western colonial acts against the Eastern world, world and its indigenous peoples. That's fair. Westerners live in plundered wealth and land from other civilizations. However, most Westerners today have done no such colonizing. I, a 21-year-old American, acknowledge that I live in wealth that was unfairly taken. But I personally did no such atrocities and neither have my peers or parents. We were born into this. There is a movement in the West saying that we should live in sorrow and guilt our whole lives. What do you personally think is a just way to live knowing all this about our Western history? What realistic fair reparations would you like to see? I am sure a lot of interested and curious Westerners who, who have been following your account would like to hear your opinion on this. It's a very good question. So, uh, yeah, it is obviously true that the West, uh, whatever wealth and prosperity they have, it is unfortunately because of the past five centuries of colonization and plunder of wealth from the East, mainly India, and also from Africa, resources and things like that. So that is a fact, and I'm glad that some people realize this. Now, obviously, you are 100% correct. You have done no such colonizing. Your parents, your peers, the people who live in the West today have done no such thing. And therefore, I disagree with people who say that the people of West should live in this permanent state of guilt and uh, what, what does it say? Guilt and sorrow your whole lives. No, it's not your fault that what it's not your fault what your ancestors did. I do not believe in in transferring guilt from generation to generation, especially when the newest, latest generation has done no such thing. So first of all, as long as you realize where the wealth came from and you acknowledge the fact that it's been stolen, I don't see any reason for you to live in guilt for what several generations ago your ancestors did. Now, what is also true is that even today, there is there are multiple, numerous forms of neo-colonization that are still going on. For instance, Africa is still being plundered actively, whether it is by European powers or by, by, by the US. The US is still a hegemonic power that dictates to the world what the world should do. So these activities are happening right now in our lifetime and in, a, in some way or the other, that government that does it represents you. It is, in a way, whether you like it or not, your will that is being acted out through your government because the us is like they say a democracy it's a two-party state which which is not quite a democracy in my opinion but let it be that way so the thing is this uh you you were asking is is uh, 
what realistic fair reparations would i would like to see i don't expect any reparations it's not possible for the western powers to give out reparations and whatever reparations even if they are willing to give out will not be sufficient to to cover what's happened i mean the kind of wealth historians and economists have calculated the amount of wealth that uh that the british uh took out of india over a, over two or three centuries and the amount the, the figure they reached was approximately 45 trillion dollars in today's money approximately maybe 45 or 50 now is there any way any the uk can pay that sort of money back to india it's simply impossible and then even if it is paid to india how will they do it because that's like three times what is the current uk gdp per year must be around 3 4 trillion uh, billion dollars yeah per year maybe trillion so to pay 15 times that is not feasible at all it's not practical it's impossible and nobody will accept uh, will agree to do that so it's not it is unrealistic to expect any reparations from the west to the east or to africa it's not going to happen the only thing that needs to happen is that all the neo colonial activities that are still happening whether it is interference in the internal affairs of india by the united states and uh, other western powers whether it is the continuing plunder of wealth and resources from africa which is still ongoing i mean what the west does is it installs these puppet regimes in africa africa is a broken continent full of straight lines that, that don't reflect the history of the african people there are so many different cultures in africa and they have been divided to, by by the straight lines let me show you an example what do i mean by that uh let me share the map let's take a look at what africa looks like google maps here we are so this is okay let's go to africa you will see the continent divided by these straight lines that have been arbitrarily drawn by western powers who left the the continent but wanted to continue their influence there so what you do is you create nation states that don't respect or recognize uh ethnic boundaries the 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 places where ethnic groups have traditionally lived so you have you create these nations where you have multiple ethnic groups that are divided across boundaries and then they are in conflict because they see their ethnic identity as being above the national identity because the nation the nation that they live in is an artificially created nation they are not culturally and historically tied to those boundaries and then what these nations do is that they impose these puppet dictatorial regimes in africa that's the history of africa for the past century full of civil war full of dictators petty dictators tin pot dictators whether it is in zimbabwe angola wherever drc mali all over africa you have these petty dictators these corrupt dictators so by installing these petty corrupt dictators what the west does is that it continues its colonial activities in africa so if you have a corrupt dictator who owes his uh power to you to an european power or 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 a, or a western power then that person will do everything to keep that relationship going which means they will allow you to keep on plundering their wealth for gold for cobalt for uranium for whatever else is available lithium whatever your land is rich in you're going to keep allowing the western powers to do that so these are things that need to stop and these are all being done even today by the west even the, even the chinese are now getting into the fray for the past 
one and a half decades, they have been investing a lot in Africa and they are continuing similar policies. So my point is very simple. It, it is unfair to expect today's people who live in the West to bear the guilt of what their ancestors did several generations ago. I do not see the people of the West today as being guilty of of what their ancestors did. Of course, some of them have this attitude that what our ancestors did was right. It was justified. We, could, we did it because we can and we are proud of it. So the, these attitudes are very problematic. And that's why there is this deep, bitter divide between the East and the West. People in India today are sick and tired of being lectured by the West. It's still happening all the time on social media. You can see it in real time. You go on Twitter or wherever else. You have the US government lecturing India about democracy. A two-party state is lecturing India, a vibrant democracy, about what democracy should be like. It's a joke. A two-party state is just one rung above, above a one-party state. The US is a two-party state and they want to come and talk to us about democracy. So this lecturing needs to stop. It's not going to stop until India raises its profile and becomes a major power on it in its own right. That's the only thing India has to do. So I expect no reparations. I think it's unrealistic and uh, impractical to expect any form of reparations. Whatever wealth was plundered from India in the past two, three centuries, eventually, if India rises and becomes powerful enough, India will be able to reacquire, reacquire it through a variety of means. That's how it's going to be whether we like it or not. It's not going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month. It's going to happen if India rises properly the way it should. Then it's going to happen over the next century or two centuries. India may quite possibly reacquire all that wealth through a variety of means. So I would say that I, I, hold, I personally hold no bitterness towards the people of the West. What their ancestors did, it is not your response. What your ancestors did, it's not your fault. It's not your responsibility. Yes, you are enjoying the fruits of the stolen wealth. Well, that's just how it works in history. That's just how it works. That's the nature of power. So that's in brief what I have to say about this. Okay, this is by Gita. Yes, it is always easy to blame others for one's misfortune, but here are some historical facts. India, whose actual name was Bharatvarsh, used to be the greatest nation on earth for thousands of years. Isn't it true they brought about their own demise? Didn't they engage in a colossal civil war that completely destroyed itself? All of it under the watchful eye of Lord Krishna himself. Any historical or ge geopolitical presentation or analysis is utterly and completely irrelevant and useless if it is not grounded and based on morality. I can't stress this, that enough. Okay. I, I get the feeling that this, uh, this person, Gita, is most likely somebody who lives in the West and who may have some kind of affinity for India or Indian culture or something because the name is Gita. Somebody who in some way likes India. Okay, I, I get it. The thing is this. So you are saying that India brought about, brought about its own demise through this colossal civil war, Mahabharat. Now, when did the Mahabharata happen? We don't quite know when it happened. It's clearly something that, ha that happened thousands of years ago. So it is clearly something that happened that preceded the, the Mauryan era, the Kushan era, the Gupta era, the Chola era and all that. Now, wasn't India the most prosperous and most, um, most advanced nation in the world during the Gupta era, during the Chola era, during the Kushan era, during the Mauryan era, and even during the Saptasindhu uh, phase of India's civilization, the Saraswati Sindhu phase, the so-called Harappan phase, right? India was way, way more advanced than any other place in the world. A completely, fully industrialized and urbanized civilization that 
whose geographical extent dwarfed Egypt plus Mesopotamia plus the Middle East put together. So this phase of India's civilization, the, the Harappan phase, the so-called Harappan phase, is something that came after the events of the Mahabharata. So is the Mahabharata something that destroyed India? That's what you're claiming, which is completely untrue. Right. And now let's talk about the Mahabharata, this colossal civil war that destroyed India. How did it destroy India? In what way did it destroy India? Let's understand what this conflict was about. It was not a civil war. It was a conflict within a family. The Kauravas and the, uh, the Pandavas were cousins. It was a single extended family. You could call it a clan. And they had this power struggle an internal power struggle. They both wanted primacy. They want the Kauravas wanted to rule India, and so did the Pandavas. And there was this conflict. That's what this uh, war was about. And this war took place over a number of days in one location in northern India, the battlefield of Kurukshetra, which still exists. We know where it is. So the the battle, the war, was localized, confined to one battlefield. That was how it was done. It was not spread across all of India. Not a single small, not a single city, town, village was damaged or destroyed in this conflict. Not a single non-combatant was harmed. Not a single civilian was harmed or killed in this conflict. So what are you talking about? You may have read something about Indian history. And this is not something that only applies to people who are not Indian. This applies to Indians as well. They have all kinds of misconceptions about this, this uh, conflict. It was fought under a set of rules that you're going to fight within this battlefield and you're not going to destroy the country. Not a single town, city or village was damaged or destroyed. Not a single non-combatant was harmed. Read the texts. That's where we get the information from. Nothing of that sort happened. Two sets of warriors, two armies fought each other over a number of days and at the end of the conflict, the winners were the Pandavas. That's what happened. Now you speak about Geopolitics and history has to be grounded in morality. Geopolitics is about power. Right or wrong has nothing to do with geopolitics. Ethics and morality have nothing to do with geopolitics. Look at the history of the planet. Look at the history of the human species. It's a history of conflict. You see morality in conflict? What's happening in Yemen right now? Where is the morality in what the US is doing in Yemen? What is the morality in what the US did in Abu Ghraib in Iraq? Two million Iraqi civilians, innocent Iraqi men, women and children were killed in Iraq because of the US invasion, the second so-called Gulf War. Where is the morality in that? I don't see you criticizing that morality, but I, as an Indian, have to be based and grounded in morality. Let me explain morality. Lord Krishna understood this morality and so did Vishnugupta Chanakya. The highest morality for a king is that his Nation and its people should prosper. That is it. You must win. Non-negotiable. Whatever endeavors or conflicts your nation is engaged in, the highest morality for the king or the ruler or the emperor or the queen or whoever it is in charge, the highest morality is that you must succeed and your nation and your people must prosper in the long run. That is it. And Lord Krishna acted according to this. So did Vishnugupta Chanakya. So what happened in the Mahabharata war? There was a terrible war. Both sides did, I mean, not both sides, both sides broke the rules 
at various levels a certain side the, the kaurav was engaged in certain atrocious activities right at the end of the day the kauravas lost the pandavas won they were victorious and then what did lord krishna do he asked the pandavas the victorious pandavas to go to the himalayas and never come back that's what he told them to do and that's and they obeyed him why is that why did he ask the victorious side to give up everything and leave and what he did is that he installed parikshit the grandson of arjun the son of uh, abhimanyu as the king so the the lineage continued the family was not destroyed but a new king was put in place parikshit not yudhishthir not arjun not bhim none of these people why is that let me explain why none of them was worthy of ruling the country they had all all shown that they were unworthy of ruling the country yudhishthir they call him dharmaraj the guy could not control his compulsive gambling he gambled away his kingdom he gambled away his family his brothers he gang- gambled away his wife is a person who does that worthy of ever being a king no what about arjun the great warrior the great shurveer brave mahan yodha what about him he had trained his whole life for war and when it comes to fighting the war he developed cold feet and lord krishna was forced to give a lengthy pravachan on the battlefield before arjun was willing to fight is a man who has such qualities worthy of being a king no and so on and so forth so lord krishna did what is best for the country for the civilization he got rid of these he made sure first of all that the evil side the side that represented adharma the kauravas were destroyed he made sure of that through the pandavas and then he got rid of the pandavas themselves because they too were not fit enough or worthy enough to rule the great civilization and therefore what happened is that through these actions through this war and then the subsequent permanent exile of the pandavas lord krishna ensured that this family this problematic family was no longer in the picture but he did not destroy the lineage he installed parikshit as the king and parikshit's lineage continued so that was the right thing to do so this great colossal civil war it did not destroy india's civilization it rejuvenated indian civilization that is the great feat that lord krishna achieved and that was the right thing he he was able to ensure that he followed the highest morality as a king he was the king in the west his capital city was dwarka which we have rediscovered in in the 1980s so he was the king in the west but he was the greatest statesman of that era maybe the greatest statesman india has ever seen among the top 2 or 3 ever and that's why we still remember him so the thing is he acted based on morality and the highest morality for a king is to ensure that you your kingdom your people they have long term prosperity that's what he achieved so that's what i would like to see to say to you geeta you may have read something about india something about the mahabharat it's not enough you have to be born into this culture to understand it and lots of people who are born in india into this culture they still don't understand this so that's what i have to say based on a little bit of reading you can you can start drawing conclusions about what is right and what is wrong and what is morality please please it takes a lifetime of study study to understand a little bit of this that's how complex indian culture is 
okay let's take uh, another question that is most likely related to this and this is uh, by someone from india vignesh says lord krishna belongs to the entire world not only to bharat he is a god not a leader so i had said in my in one of my answers on leadership that lord krishna made this promise when he said yada yada hi dharmasya bharata and so on he made a promise to the people of india that whenever in the future there is an existential crisis and existential conflict to india to the people of Bharat and the land of Bharat, and when Adharma rises to beyond a certain extent, he will return and destroy Adharma. That's what I had said. So this gentleman Vignesh is saying that Lord Krishna doesn't belong to the entire, doesn't belong to only India. He belongs to the entire world. He's a god, not a leader. Are bhai, what are you smoking, sir? He was a living human being. He's a historical figure. And we know that because we have rediscovered his lost capital city of Dwarka, which the Mahabharat says went under the ocean because of a colossal earthquake. And we have discovered it exactly where this ancient text said it would be. So he is a historical figure. His capital city has been rediscovered. He was not, he was not some supernatural, mythological, mythical figure. He was a living, breathing human being, one of the greatest Indians, one of the greatest humans ever born. He was a leader. He orchestrated the events that took place during his lifetime. He directed the course of the Mahabharata war and he brought out the best possible result for India. And he belongs to the people of India. He made this promise to the people of Bharat. Now some geniuses are saying that Bharat means Arjun. Please, please, don't do this nonsense over here. So Lord Krishna belonged to the people of Bharat, to the, to the geographical area, the region, the sacred geography of Bharat, India. And he made this promise to the people of Bharat. And some people say, some so-called spiritual leaders say, they say that I don't serve any particular group of people. I serve humanity. Ha, 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 ha. That's what some people say. All of these spiritual leaders and gurus, many of them say this, that I don't serve India only. I serve humanity and all that. Let me explain something very clearly. You may claim to serve humanity. But how? what percentage of humanity accepts you as a leader or a guru? You can actually serve only those people, right? You may claim to serve everybody, but if only 3% of, the, of humanity accepts you as a leader or a guru, then you can actually serve only 3% of those people. No matter what grandiose claims you're making. I may claim I, I serve the planet of, of some other solar system as well, but they don't know me. You can only serve those who accept you as a leader or a guru. And now tell me something, you go to the Middle East, will people accept Lord Krishna as their leader or the guru or their uh, god? You go to, the, to, to Europe or to, the, or to the US, what percentage of people will accept Lord Krishna as their, as their leader or their guru or their god or whatever you want to call it? Only those who accept Lord Krishna as a god, as a, as a guide or whatever, only those are the people who, who he can actually serve. So he serves the people of Bharat, those in Bharat who actually worship him, recognize him, believe in him, and he serves the sacred geography of Bharat Varsh, which is a constant that geography may have certain other nation states within, but it still doesn't matter. So he served the sacred geography of Bharat Varsh, he served the people of Bharat, and he served those who are on the side of dharma so that is the subset of humanity that he served 
He belongs only to those people, not to the whole world. Please disabuse yourself of these ridiculous notions, sir. Okay, Divya Rabari says, what, uh, no, sorry, how was the relationship between the Sikhs and the Marathas? And why is it that the two empires intercept at the northern part of India? This is a good question. Let's take a look at the map of the Maratha Empire. So we know what the Maratha Empire looked like. Let me Google it up quickly. And let me share that. So I just Googled the Maratha Empire. As you can see, this is the high tide of the Maratha Empire. They had essentially reclaimed much of India and liberated much of India from Turkic occupation and oppression all the way up to the southern part of Afghanistan. So the, and it included Punjab. Now, please remember this. The Maratha Empire predates the Sikh kingdom. I do not consider the Sikh, uh, the Sikh dominion to be an empire. It is not an empire. It's a tiny little kingdom. Because let me let me show you why. Let's let they call it the historians call it the Sikh Empire. In in what sense or form is it an empire? Let us see the size of the Sikh Empire, shall we? So-called Sikh Empire. See how small it is. In what sense is this an empire? It's just a kingdom. An empire is something that is much larger than that. For instance, I could I could build bring out something else. How about the Wakataks? The Wakatak uh, dynasty, the Wakatakas are not considered to be an empire. They are considered to be a kingdom and a dynasty. They are actually larger than the Sikh empire, the so-called Sikh empire. And therefore, what I would say is that the Sikh uh, period, when they were ruling that small part of northern India, it's not an imperial era. It's not an empire. It's just a kingdom. And the high tide of the Sikh kingdom was under Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And he was a great man. He did many good things, etc. What's the relationship between the Sikhs and the Marathas? The Sikh kingdom came after the demise or the decline, eventual slow decline of the Maratha empire. And the Sikh kingdom would never have happened had the Marathas not liberated that part of India and the rest of India from the Turks. So what the Marathas did was they re-established Hindavi Swarajya over large parts of India. They liberated India from the Turkic occupation and oppression. And because of all of those things, the Sikhs were eventually able to create their own kingdom, not empire. So that in very brief and at a very big picture level, high level, I can tell you about the relationship very tangentially between the Sikhs and the Marathas. Okay, Swarup says a remarkable paper about India has come out today from the IMF. Its findings are mind-blowing. Among them, extreme poverty, $1.9 per person per day, was below 1% in India in 2019 and 2020, pandemic year in India. A low percentage in extreme poverty for two consecutive years is considered to be the elimination of extreme poverty. It's showcasing India's success, in particularly for the present dispensation. So are these mind-blowing findings the reason many are avoiding it <laughs> altogether? Good. Very good question. Have you seen anyone in the media, in your popular, in your, fa in your favorite media channel, news channel, or your whoever else, have you seen anyone speak about this? And these findings, these statistics, this data, it comes from the IMF. It doesn't come from the Indian government. So the IMF the International Monetary Fund itself is showing 
that between in 2019 and 2020 which is the latest data that we have these two years extreme poverty which is defined as less than 1.9 dollars per person per day extreme poverty was less than 1% of in the population of india and that is by definition the uh, elimination of extreme poverty as per the definition of the imf and and the economists worldwide so even during the pandemic year the government of india was able to eliminate extreme poverty we still have poverty in india there are people below the poverty line but extreme pro poverty is something that's critical it it causes incredible hardship to people so that has been eliminated in india and why is no one speaking about this about this great achievement because it is mr narendra modi who is in power and they don't like him and it's the bjp that's in power and they don't like the bjp and therefore even though this government and this prime minister have achieved this incredible feat for the first time in the past uh, in the ni- post 1947 history of india no one wants to talk about it how shameful is that we should be proud of the fact that mr modi has been able to achieve this through his government and through all the other people who have put in so much hard work since 2014 so much change has been brought about but we don't want to speak about this it is shameful that that the media which is supposed to be this impartial fair objective organization or or or, or institution it is so biased it doesn't want people in india to know about or the good that's the, that the government is doing and is still doing it's an ongoing process so yes <laughs> if it was somebody else in power they would have done it but if it was somebody else in power such a thing would never have happened so i would like to personally congratulate mr modi and the government of india the current government of india for this incredible achievement it is the first time since 1947 that this has been achieved and i give the credit only to mr modi and only to the bjp government nobody else because india was far from this situation in 2014 it's because of their hard work put in year after year that we have been able to achieve this whether it is the electrification of the country whether it is the building of so many uh, toilets whether it is the uh, giving giving everybody in india access to a bank account or this new achievement all of this has been done by mr modi and his government only and the credit goes only to them and to nobody else so that's what i would like to put on the record Okay someone says socialism destroyed Venezuela absolutely 100% incorrect Yes Venezuela is a socialist country but you know what destroyed Venezuela Look at the graph of the Venezuelan economy look at when the hyperinflation starts look at when the gdp drops look at when the poverty begins when what does it coincide with socialism was always there So what precipitated the destruction of Venezuela let me tell you US sanctions It is not socialism that destroyed Venezuela. It is American sanctions that destroyed Venezuela. Vietnam is a socialist country. It's doing really well. China is a socialist country. It has a state-controlled economy. It's not that laissez-faire capitalism model. It doesn't have a completely free market. So it is not socialism. I'm not. I'm not a proponent of socialism. I'm not. I'm not a fan of socialism. But let's be fair. it is not socialism that destroyed venezuela it is the united states that deliberately destroyed venezuela end of story okay alphabet says why are there many gujaratis in tanzania zanzibar and other nearby 
places. Okay, good question. Let's take a look at the map and see where these places are. Where is the map? Let's bring in the map. Right. So let's take a look at the map. So you know where India is. And if you go east of India, you come across the eastern coast of Africa. So this here, if you can see my mouse pointer, this here is Tanzania. Zanzibar is, uh, yeah, this little island here. And we also have Kenya, Somalia, Mozambique, Madagascar and other places, Eastern Africa. So Gujaratis, you will find them across Tanzania, across Kenya and more or less across Eastern Africa. You will also see some presence of Gujaratis and Indians in Madagascar and so on. So India, like I've said before, has always been a seafaring maritime civilization. You will find presence of Indians very ancient records, evidence of the presence of, in of Indians in Australia. 5,000 years before today, you will find that Indian genetics made an entry into the Australian gene pool. Uh, you will find ancient uh, evidence of Indians in Africa as well. For instance, the first introgression of Indian zebu cattle in Africa happened about 10,000 years ago. And these cattle, they don't go for a walk or for a migration on their own. On their own, these are domestic animals. They go when human beings take them somewhere. So, which tells you that ten thousand years before today, Indians went to Africa with zebu cattle. So, it's not some brief voyage. They went with cattle, with herds of cattle to Africa. Indians, ancient Indians. And once again, about four thousand years before today, you will find evidence of uh, of carvings or paintings of Indian zebu cattle in ancient Egypt. And uh, so, so there were at least two waves of migration of Indian cattle into Africa. One is about 10,000 years ago. One is about 4,000 years before today. And Indians have been, if, even if you look at the people of Somalia, of Ethiopia, of Sudan, etc., you will find some Indian characteristics and Indian culture there. The kind of dressing style they have, the, their facial features and appearance. And you will see that same thing all across the eastern coast of Africa. So it looks like Indians have been going to Africa for thousands of years. Now, Africa has always been in turmoil for the past 100 plus years. And therefore, nobody has done a proper genetic survey of the people, of the populations. Of the, of the humans in Africa. Once that is done, everything will be clarified when the Indian genetics entered Africa. So that is still something that will happen in the future. But it is well known that Indians, whether it is from southern India, from Kerala, or from Gujarat, they have been traveling to Africa and living in Africa for centuries on end, mostly Gujaratis. Gujaratis are somehow an entrepreneurial people. And uh, you will find the textiles that you see in Gujarat, the textile patterns and the styles that you see in Gujarat, you will find the same thing in places like Mozambique and Tanzania and Kenya. Ladies over there also wear similar clothes with the same patterns. And you will find Indian influences, deep Indian influences in the cuisine of the countries in Eastern Africa and so on. So it why are there so many Gujaratis there? Because I think the Gujaratis have traditionally been a traveling people and an entrepreneurial people. And they put down deep roots in Africa that go back centuries, if not thousands of years. And it is well known that when this individual... Vasco da Gama came, was searching for India. He found an Indian sailor somewhere, an uh, Indian merchant or traveler somewhere in Eastern Africa. And that's how he was able to reach India from there. 
So I'm not sure if that person was Gujarati or was from Kerala, but he reached uh, Calicut, Kolikode, and that's how the the next cycle of uh, invasions started. So that's the story of Indians and in specific, to be more specific, Gujaratis in Eastern Africa. It's a very ancient story. It it begins before Gujarat or Maharashtra or all of these places were even a thing. It's way before that. Indians have been going to Africa for about 10,000 years at least. Radio says, what are your thoughts on the introduction of African cheetahs in India? Is it not a bad idea to give per precious funding to a foreign species? I think it's far better to utilize these resources in the conservation of local species such as sloth bears, Indian wolves, civet cats, striped hyenas and local species of various other animals like small wild cats, the caracal for instance and so on. Even some part of this budget can also be used for the conservation of Himalayan brown, Himalayan brown bears. We need to spend sufficient money to conserve the species that we still have, the tiger, the lion, and various other small, obscure species, various snakes, serpents, pythons, hedgehogs, porcupines, all kinds of species we have. It's a very rich uh, ecosystem that we have in various parts of India. It's all interconnected. We have the brown Himalayan red panda, the small one, which you find in the Himalayan region. We have the clouded leopard, the spotted leopard, very hard to find species in Northern India and so many other interesting species. The golden langur, for instance, very interesting langur. The typical langur is white with a black face. The golden langur is a golden fur and a black face. Very intelligent animals and so on. So what needs to happen is that all of these species need to be safeguarded. Their, their habitats must be safeguarded and preserved so India needs to do that. I think about 10% of India overall is forested. That's how much is left. We need to make sure that it is not destroyed. When it comes to the cheetahs, we should not introduce the African cheetah into India. Firstly, and why am I saying this? India was the home of the cheetah. We had tens of thousands of cheetahs in India just three or 400 years ago. The, the, the Turk, Jahangir or Salim, Akbar, Akbar's son Salim, Jahangir, he had a menagerie of 5,000 pet cheetahs. Just one guy. Right? So the cheetah, the chitraka, was always part of the Indian wildlife ecosystem. It is the British who rendered the cheetah extinct by putting a price on the head of the cheetah. So if you bring back a tail or a head of the cheetah or even the skin of the cheetah and you give it to the local district collector who collects things, then the collector would actually give you some money for that. So everybody suddenly looked upon this as a great gold rush and that's why the cheetah was hunted into extermination. And the puppet Maharajas of India were also involved in this. Right? The various puppet Maharajas that were put in place after, after 1857. So that's why the cheetah was rendered extinct by the foreign colonizers of India, by the British. Now the African cheetah is a different species from the extinct Indian cheetah. And the problem with these African wildcats is that they, they have this virus, the FIV virus, feline immunodeficiency virus, that Indian wildcats don't have. We don't want to introduce that African virus into the Indian ecosystem. You must have heard of HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, which causes that this is called AIDS. 
there is a simian immunodeficiency virus, SIV, that infects various monkeys in Africa. And there is a feline immunodeficiency virus, which does the same thing in cats, in various species of cats, large cats, small cats, all of that, lions in Africa and even leopards and all that. So we don't want that virus to enter the Indian ecosystem. We don't want that. If you bring African cheetahs into India, that virus will come into India and from there it may infect other Indian species of wild cats. We don't want that to get into the tiger and all that. Because our animals, our cats don't have the natural immunity to this virus that the African cats have developed over hundreds of generations. Therefore, we must not introduce the African cheetah into India very clear. But we do want to revive the Indian cheetah, which is extinct. So what do we do? Well... The Indian cheetah is essentially the Asian cheetah and there is still a population of Asiatic cheetahs in our neighboring country, Iran. We know there's the small temporary nation between us, but that's a matter of time. So we have a population of what is essentially nothing but the Indian cheetah still alive, still extant in Iran. So what we should do is to reintroduce some of those Iranian cheetahs into India with the cooperation of our, our Iranian friends. Right. So I have heard about this proposal since, I mean, I think this proposal has been around for decades. From the 1980s onwards, people have been talking about this, discussing it, but it's never fructified. So I think the Indian government should sit down with our Parsi cousins, talk to them, request them to send a few cheetahs, a small percentage of their population. To us and we can give something back in return if they want, no problem, give and take. And that is how one could reintroduce the cheetah into India. It is something that's been part of our culture and civilization for 10,000 plus years. Ever since we have been, our ancestors have lived in India, we have coexisted with the cheetah and the lion and the tiger. So the lion is now confined to one small part of India, to the Gir forest in Saurashtra, South Gujarat, in the Saurashtra Peninsula of Western India. And we no longer have the cheetah. So we need to ensure that we safeguard these iconic felines of India. The tiger, the lion, and we need to reintroduce the cheetah. So the way to do it is not to bring it from Africa, the cheetah, but to introduce it via Iran, from the Iranian population. That way the virus won't be introduced into India. Okay, this is a very long question uh, by Swaroop. I read an article that was recently published in peer-reviewed peer journal, whatever, by the University of Oxford, Archaeometry. It was about the technology Arabs used to, to craft the famous Damascus swords. The technology may have existed in India before these weapons were built in the capital city of Syria, and so on and so forth. A long question. I get the point. You're talking about Damascus steel. What is known as Damascus steel? Well, let me explain something to you, my dear friends. The Damascus steel was imported into Syria from India. And in Damascus, they used that steel that came in from India to craft those swords that are known as Damascus swords. And that steel to the Western people became known as Damascus steel or Syriac steel or whatever. But it was imported into Syria from India. So just like the people in Europe called the decimal system and the numbers, Arabic numerals, even though they had come from India, similarly, this steel, which was manufactured in India, was given the name of Damascus steel because they came across this steel first in Damascus. 
So this technology is called crucible steel technology. It involves the infusion of carbon into the steel. There is a whole process that was involved in this. We have lost that process. We have lost the method. Okay, there is all kinds of uh, speculation that there was a certain kind of chemistry and certain te temperatures and all that. And you use quenching while forging, which is you dump the, 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 the steel into water and quench it, or you can dump it into snow if you want or whatever, right? So that there's a whole process that you follow while while uh, while forging any steel implement or weapon or whatever. But it was all done using a certain kind of steel that was manufactured only in India. Only Indians had this technology. And then these, these big steel ingots would be exported to various countries wherever they were in demand. And those people there, the blacksmiths there, the craftsmiths there, would then forge that steel into various implements or weapons or whatever they wanted. Daggers, swords, and whatever else. But that steel came from India. The Syrians, the, the people there, did not know how to make that particular kind of steel. So this technology is called crucible steel. It is at least 2,500 years old. And the oldest evidence we have found, the oldest archaeological evidence we have found of this steel being manufactured in India dates back to about 2,500 years before today. And the oldest evidence is found in present-day Tamil Nadu and Sri Lanka. So that's where the technology uh, seems to have emerged from. Of course, we have done very little archaeology in India. So maybe if we do more, we may find evidence of it in other parts of India as well, possibly, perhaps. But thus far, the oldest evidence we have is from southern India, from Sri Lanka and Tamil Nadu. And it is about two and a half thousand years old. So it is undeniably an Indian product, an Indian technology. The Syrians did not know how to manufacture or to produce that kind of steel. They only knew how to buy the steel and then use it to forge various implements. So that is the truth about Damascus steel. It is not Damascus steel. It is Indian steel. Okay, Kunal says, what are your thoughts on the Gujarat government's decision to include the Srimad Bhagavad Gita in the school syllabus? Thumbs up. Great job. This should be taken up all across the country. We need to be taught our culture, our history systematically from a young age. We, ha we have been deracinated the past few generations. We are completely cut off from our culture, from our cultural heritage, the heritage of thousands of generations of our ancestors. And because of that, Indians today are lost, they are adrift, and they don't and they see their own culture as something that is other. I am not a practicing Hindu. I am Hindu only in name. I never go to temple. Blah, 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 blah. It is not the fault of today's Indians that they are like this. It's because they have been systematically cut off from their roots. So what the Gujarat government has done, the decision is an excellent decision. I would like to see this replicated all across India. Not only, okay, the, the Bhagavad Gita is a good start, but we need to be taught our culture systematically, properly, in a step-by-step -step manner from ages whatever until you become an adult. That would be really good. Why not? It's your own culture. Why should you not be taught it? All right. This is by Shivang. Greetings from Canada. I am an Indian international student living in Canada. For people like me, channels like yours are the main source of information. 
and watching your podcast is fun like watching a netflix show huge fun thank you so much sir thank you appreciate it my question is in 1971 war if russia would not have helped us by sending nuclear submarines and using veto at all the crucial moments then according to you what would have happened to india is there a chance that our whole geography would have been different if they hadn't helped is this the main reason why indians today have a soft spot for russia what would have been the worst scenario for india if russia had not helped okay so what happened in 1971 in 1971 there was this ongoing genocide in east pakistan present day bangladesh the pakistani army was murdering tens of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of innocent men women and children bengalis irrespective of the religion of course most of them were hindus they were targeting hindus but anybody who helped them was also targeted intellectuals were targeted uh, anybody who has a higher education degree was targeted so they were trying to wipe out the flower the, the cream of the crop of of the people of bengal and they were trying to eradicate hinduism once and from all, once and for all from bengal right so the genocide which was going on over there would have consumed would have killed between 1 million and 5 million 5 million bengalis the official figure is i don't know what the official figures are don't believe the official figures they are always under representations of what really happened so there was this genocide going on and millions of bengalis were running for their lives and where would they go they had nowhere to go except cross over into india because when things go bad no matter where you are from you want to go to india today even afghans want to come to india now they will recognize india as their <laughs> as the only nation that can save them so they these bengalis millions of them they were streaming into india trying to escape from the horrific genocide that was going on there so eventually this became an enormous burden for for india they were coming into assam they were coming into bengal and so on and so forth how could india feed so many people and sustain such an enormous influx of refugees when india at that time was still an incredibly poor country and then what happened is that the pakistanis the from east pakistan they started launching bombing raids into india with fighter planes so that was the straw that bro- broke the camel's back and then india decided to launch a retaliatory military operation into east pakistan and to dis- defeat the uh, west pakistan army and liberate the country from the from the force that was conducting genocide so india retaliated once the pakistani military action began then what happened is that the us government under nixon and and secretary of state henry kissinger they decided to intervene on behalf of the pakistanis so the united states supported the ongoing genocide in in, in bangladesh in east bengal the americans were on the side of genocide they decided to take military action to allow the genocide to go on and they were aware of what's happening read the book the blood telegram they were aware the american government was very well aware of what the pakistanis were doing and they were fine with that so now that india starts this military operation what the americans do is they sent an entire aircraft carrier uh, task force into the sea of kalinga the bay of bengal to intimidate india and to threaten india because that aircraft carrier would have dozens of fighter planes with lots of arms and ammunition they could possibly obliterate parts of india with that and it's not just one aircraft carrier it's an entire strike group with lots of 
uh, destroyers, a few submarines and all that. So that was designed to intimidate India. And, and they were stopped and they were prevented from doing this because the Russians sent a fleet of nuclear submarines to the same place. So when the Americans arrived into the Bay of Bengal, they were met by Russian nuclear submarines. And that's why they had to back off. They sent the USS Enterprise to India. But it was met by this waiting task force of Russian nuclear submarines. And that's why they had to back off. Otherwise, what would have happened? The question is, had the Russians not helped India out, what would have happened? The Americans would have interfered militarily. India, I suppose at the time, was no match for the American uh, the, the aircraft carrier task force, strike group that they'd sent to India. It would have had enormous firepower. They could have broken India into pieces, possibly. They could have cut off uh, more parts of India, maybe the, the far east of India, the so-called uh, northeast of India. Possibly they could have done that. They would have certainly tried to humiliate India and break India further into pieces. So what is the worst case scenario for India? You would have seen a Pakistani victory over India. And if the Pakistani uh, army would have prevailed in East Pakistan, maybe the Pakistani army in West Pakistan may also have been encouraged to go further and try to take over the rest of Kashmir and maybe even strike for Delhi. Because that's always been the great dream of the Pakistani army. We'll have lunch in Jaipur and dinner in Delhi, that sort of thing. That has been the great dream of theirs. So possibly, had the Russians not stopped the American aircraft carrier group, such things may have happened. So essentially, you can say that the Russians saved India by sending their nuclear submarines to, conf to confront the American aircraft carrier in this uh, group task force, whatever you call it. So it's possible, like you say, Shivang, that our geography would have been completely different. Maybe India would have been broken into pieces had the Russians not intervened and helped India out. And of course, the Russians always supported India in the UN Security Council by using their veto power whenever it was necessary. It was the USSR that did that. So as you know, as you can see, there is this long history that India has with the USSR or Russia, where they have helped India out on multiple locations on a continuing recurring basis. It's not a one-off thing. Now, of course, they were doing it to further their own national interest. That's how it works in geopolitics. There is no free lunch. So they were helping India because it was beneficial for them. Fine. That is okay. That's how it works. But they helped India. So that is the reason why many Indians... Uh, apparently have a soft spot for Russia. That is certainly, especially in the older generations, the people who were born in the 60s and 70s of all that, maybe some of them have a soft spot for Russia because they've seen the Russians help India when all the odds were stacked against India. I mean, there was a make or break moment, a make or break episode in India's history. Had the Americans actually used the military option against India, it could have broken India. An aircraft carrier strike group is a massively powerful uh, military deployment. It has more power than most countries have. Right. And in the 1970s, aircraft carriers were almost invulnerable. Cruise missiles did not exist at the time. Today, India can take out any aircraft carrier strike group using the Brahmos missiles. You fire a number. If you know what is the mathematical threshold, 
of defense then you can fire just one more missile and you are you going to breach the defenses it's just a mathematical certainty that you can obliterate an entire aircraft carrier strike group using cruise missiles but that technology did not exist in the 1970s and india was very poor at the time so that was a make or break moment for india and russia intervened when india needed it so had that not happened india could have been destroyed broken into pieces and maybe india would have been some parts of india would have been under pakistani rule today so that's what the americans intended for india and they were foiled by russia adinath says can india get get access to cutting edge technology like the f35 from the us the us wants india to buy f35 and all kinds of other weapons systems from them which is not advisable first of all the f35 is is an overpriced piece of garbage let me not mince my words the f35 is incredibly expensive more than 100 million dollars per per piece and it is garbage it's not a good fighter aircraft it does nothing it 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 is supposed to be a multi role fighter aircraft that has its vertical take off capabilities and all it's never been tested in actual combat and from whatever i have studied about this particular aircraft design it's not worth the price tag and it's not it doesn't have any special capabilities it has a certain amount of stealth features and all i think the f22 raptor is a far better aircraft in my opinion but it doesn't have certain features that this new aircraft the f35 supposedly has so the so the the japanese are buying f35s very expensive planes the japan the japanese are a us vassal state the israelis are buying f35s the israelis are a us vassal state the turks were supposed to buy f35s but the americans have refused now because the turks bought a piece of equipment from russia the s400 system so the americans you will know that when the americans sell the f35 to a nation that nation is in one way or the other directly or indirectly an american vassal state right so i don't think that technology is worth it even if they offer it to us at half the price it may not be worth it because first of all you would need to integrate your military capabilities to a very deep extent with the american military which means that you have to open up your bandwidth and various things to to their uh system which would give them a great deal of access deep into your military systems and a great deal of insight into what you are actually actually doing it would essentially make your plans and your military completely transparent to the americans and that's not in india's interest so yes india can get get access to the f35 technology to to the us by becoming a us vassal state otherwise they will not give it to us i would say that we don't need the f35 for the price of an f35 which is about i don't know how much it is how much how much does it cost in excess of 100 million dollars maybe 120 let's let's say 120 you could acquire three or four tejas class aircraft maybe five of those for the price of one f35 quantity has a quality of its own please understand that the tejas is not a bad bad aircraft of course the this is these are two different class of aircrafts the rules are different and all i'm just giving an example what india must do is india must invest the money in developing its own indigenous family 
of fighter aircraft. A twin-engine deck-based fighter, the TEDBF, an advanced medium combat aircraft, the AMCA, a fifth-generation aircraft, and various other classes of aircraft. That's what India needs to do. Don't waste your money and buying products from other countries that will then be remote-controlled by those countries. Instead of that, develop your own systems. Tejas says, why didn't Chalukyas and Prathihars help Prithviraj Johan in the second battle of the Rhine? Did other Hindu kingdoms not care about what was happening in other kingdoms? How was Mahmud of Ghazni able to ride freely to Somnath temple and destroyed it? What were the Cholas and Pandyas doing? What was King Bhoj, Mihir Bhoj doing? I'm studying this history recently. Please correct, correct, correct me if I am wrong. Okay, so you've spoken about a lot of different kingdoms and dynasties from across India. You're talking about two different time periods. Ghazni is before and Ghori is after. So let me give you a big picture answer. A bird's eye overview of what was happening without going into specifics. At that period of time, India was not unified under a single uh, central command. When you had the Mauryan Empire under Lord Chandragupta Maurya, under Ashok Maurya, etc., we had unified control over the entire subcontinent from one place. Under the Kushan Empire, under Lord Kanishka, the whole of India was unified under a central rule. The same thing you saw during the Gupta era. And during the Chola era also you had some of it, but it was mostly in southern parts of India, the southern half of India, and the whole of Southeast Asia. And of course, under people like, uh, under Emperor Lalitaditya also, you had most of India was unified. So when you have a unified geopolitical entity, the whole of sub the subcontinent is unified under one central leadership, that's when, if an invader comes, any foray or incursion into any part of India will be dealt with with the combined force of the whole subcontinent. That's what happens. But when you have political fragmentation, then if you invade one part of India, then only the local king who is in charge or ruling that part of India will respond. That's how it goes. So there was a lack of political unity in this period of time. When you talk about the invasion of this guy, uh, Mahmud of Ghazni or the Battle of Tarayan under Ghori, India was disunited. India was fragmented into small pieces small kingdoms. And all of these kingdoms, they were the same people, of course, but they had these petty rivalries with each other. So if some kind of misfortune befalls one of them, the others would see it as a political advantage for them. And therefore, they would not interfere. And they would let, let the misfortune continue. And the, the thinking or the calculation was that if something goes bad with this guy, Maybe in the long run, it will be advantageous to me politically. Maybe it will help me extend my, my kingdom or get more political benefits from this. So, and they did not know. They did not have the benefit of hindsight. Today, we know what the intentions of these Turks were. It was not simply military conquest. It was not simply plunder. It was not simply the annexation of a kingdom. It was the complete cultural genocide of India that they sought. They sought to enslave millions of Indians, women, children in most horrific ways to ship them off to Central Asia and to the West, Western parts beyond India and Persia. 
and use them in all kinds of horrific degrading ways as slaves and they sought to destroy india's culture civilization and religions that's what they sought to do at that time our local petty kings and chieftains did not know this right and therefore it was not so it was not seen as a threat to dharma it was just seen as some invader coming in harassing one of my rivals so let it happen hone do and uh, the cholas and the, the cholas at the time were dealing with southeast asia they had an enormous maritime empire there and therefore maybe they did not even know perhaps possibly what was happening in the northern part of india and they were confident and secure in the in the, in the knowledge that they were incredibly powerful and they could deal with anything so if it comes here we'll deal with it until that time let it be it's not my problem so that is the kind of unfortunate thinking that was there that is what happens when you have political disunity you have political fragmentation and that's why i always keep saying that when you have a nation that is at the scale of a subcontinent you need very strong central leadership the nation has has to be administered centrally right now in 21st century india you have too much democracy too much federalism each of the states has too much power and many of the states are acting against the national interest in a variety of ways i will not give you specifics because i don't want to get into that controversy but i think if you have half a brain you will know what i'm talking about so that's the situation that's the kind of situation you had a thousand years ago and that's why the other hindu kingdoms they knew what was happening they didn't care they said hone do it is good for us because it's bad for him in the long run we will benefit so they allowed it to happen which is not the kind which is the kind of petty approach that destroys civilizations so so at that time none of these kingdoms none of these kings or chieftains thought on a subcontinental civilizational scale unfortunately so that's why all these things happened Dhruvit says some linguistic experts say that the Sanskrit language, along with the Brahmi script, came from the Aramaic language. Is there some truth to this? So, these so-called linguistic experts, they say that the Brahmi script emerged from the Semitic Aramaic script. They don't refer to the Sanskrit language. A language is different from a script. A script is different from a language. A script is a vehicle. that carries a language so when it comes to the sanskrit script you, you can write the sanskrit script the sanskrit language i beg your pardon when it comes to the sanskrit language you can write sanskrit in devanagari in brahmi in the devanagari script in the brahmi script in the kharoshthi script in the sharda script in any script that you want any script that is suitable for indian languages you can even write sanskrit in the tamil script if you wish It's perfectly suitable for that. So a script is separate from a language. A script is simply a medium that carries the language. Now let's talk about the Brahmi script. Many of these so-called linguists, most of the the linguists, they claim that the Brahmi script emerged from the ancient Aramaic script, which is from the Middle East. It's a Semitic script. What proof do they have for this? None whatsoever. It's all conjecture. It's all speculation. And they have come across. They they have come. They have created this. this kind of uh, situation by arriving at a so called consensus so a group of people come together and they all say okay we agree on this and that's how it becomes a law so linguistics is a non scientific discipline it should be scientific when 
Panini, who is the father of linguistics, wrote his great treatise. It was entirely scientific. It was entirely algo- entirely logical and algorithmic. Unfortunately, today's linguists are more into politics and consensus building. And there is very little scientific or logical basis to the claims that they make. And all of these so-called eminent linguists who have, who have decided that Brahmi is descended from Aramaic, they are all from the West. And they have a few Indian minions, bootlickers, who are part of that group. So we need to reject this nonsensical claim. There is no evidence that Brahmi came from Aramaic. There is no evidence that links the two scripts together. There is no hard, undeniable, undisputable evidence. There is very little tangential evidence even that links Brahmi from Aramaic. It's just conjecture and speculation. But they have created a group and they have decided what's, what, what, is the, what is the facts and what's not, which is nonsense. Most likely, the Brahmi script evolved from the ancient Saraswati Sindhu script. The various inscriptions that are still undeciphered that you find in the Saraswati Sindhu region from about 5,000-6,000 years before today, maybe 7,000 years before today. That script, which was in use at that time, it is most likely the script that eventually slowly evolved into the Brahmi script. So that is the most likely uh, thing that happened. But what needs to happen today in India is we need to create our own institutes of linguistics and we need to employ young linguists who have not been influenced by all this nonsense and we need to do an a priori uh, undertaking and we need to examine all of these things from an a priori basis based on only logic not based on other people's interpretations and opinions so that's what needs to happen but most likely 99.999% brahmi has nothing to do to, to do with the aramaic script brahmi most likely is a temporal evolution of the old saraswati sindhu script everyone knows foreign aid is just another form of bribery india should not take money from the uk love from great britain so they call it aid the west whether it's the us whether it's uh, the uk or any other western country they give money to various so-called developing countries and they call it aid and assistance but you know what it's not really aid like like is being said here in the in our indian cultural context we have this this idea of dan when you give dan to somebody whether it's to a country or to an institution or an organization or a temple or whatever that dan has no strings attached you give the money to them because you feel that they are doing some good work and your financial contribution will help in that good cause so you give the money as dan and then the organization or the country or whoever it is will decide what to do, what, what is the best way of using that money. You leave it to them. Right? So that is dana. Dana means money or aid given with no expectation of anything in return. Right? No reciprocation. I'm giving it to you and you use it. That's it. That's all I want. When the West gives aid, there are all kinds of conditions attached, all kinds of strings attached. And what those conditions and strings are, it's interference in your internal affairs. 
So let's say you go to a loan to the World Bank, the IMF. They will give you a loan, but they will also tell you that I'm giving you this money. Now I'm going to tell you how to use the money. You can't use it any way you want. We're going to tell you exactly specifically how you use it. You're going to allow these many NGOs to come up in your country. You're going to open up your, your economy to my country, to these many sectors. You're going to allow this much percentage of investment and people can from other countries can come and acquire land and companies in your country. So they're going to infiltrate your country deep down. And that is foreign interference. So this aid is poisonous money. It's poisoned money. We don't want that sort of money. And India doesn't receive any foreign aid anymore. It is the UK that insists on sending a few million dollars per year to certain NGOs which don't do anything for the upliftment or the betterment of India. It is all done to further their geopolitical objectives, long-term geopolitical objectives. So any aid that comes from the West is used, is utilized only to further the long-term geopolitical objectives of the Western world. It does nothing to benefit developing nations. See what's happening in Africa. They have been sending in aid to Africa for decades. Africa is still the same. Much of that aid is used as salaries of NGO, of NGO personnel. The biggest NGO scam is the UN. Just see the kind of salaries these UN officials enjoy. Incredibly high salaries. They travel by private jets. All of that money that is in the UN is supposed to be used for the betterment of the world. But most of it is used in these salaries and all these perks. So, foreign aid is poisoned money. It works against your country, against your national interest. It furthers the long-term geopolitical objectives of the country where it comes from at the expense of your long-term geopolitical interests. And this applies not only to India, but it applies to all developing countries, no matter where they are, whether it is Pakistan, whether it's Sri Lanka, whether it is Kenya, whether it is anywhere in Africa or anywhere else. Do not take foreign aid. Develop good reciprocal relationships with like-minded countries and relationships that are of a mutually beneficial nature. That is how it's supposed to be. Don't ever take foreign aid. It's going to just hurt you and harm you. Okay. Please give insights on how the Chinese acquired Israel's Lavi aircraft technology, thereby creating its own J-10C variant, uncanny resemblance. Let's take a look at what these aircraft are like. So the Israeli, let's talk about the Israeli Lavi. Is Okay, let me share my screen. What does that aircraft look like? So the Israeli Lavi aircraft looks like this. It is a derivative of the American F-16 aircraft. So that's uh, what this aircraft is. They used some, they used the American F-16 as the basis for creating this Israeli variant. So the Lavi is essentially the Israeli version a slightly enhanced and modified version of the American F-16 aircraft from the 1970s. It's a good aircraft. As you can see, if you know what the F-16 looks like, it looks like similar to this. There is this air intake for the jet and all that. So this is the Israeli Lavi. Now let's take a, take a look at the Chinese J-10. J-10 fighter. It looks 
like a modified version of the lavi doesn't it the resemblance like the comment says over here is uncanny and it's it's therefore it's it's quite clear that there is some sort of a familial relationship between the lavi and the and the chinese j10 j10c there clearly is so if you look at the history of this chinese fighter jet i think the development was flagged off in the early 1980s and it took uh, 10 15 20 years for the aircraft to be developed i think it was inducted into the chinese air force in the late in the mid or late 2000s between 2003 or 2000 and 2010 somewhere there okay you can look up the exact details if you're interested and people have alleged that the chinese somehow acquired israeli inputs israeli technology to create this aircraft the j10 which was at the time the most advanced aircraft the chinese had it is still in operation they have more than 500 of these aircraft that are still in operation or that have been built so that's a big number so what's the what's the truth see the israelis were very interested in china as a market for their defense equipment the israelis have this reasonably advanced quite advanced defense manufacturing industry they manufacture all kinds of defense equipment aircraft tanks missiles and other things lots of other things and china is a big market for this so the israelis were very interested in the chinese market they had good relations with china with the chinese communist party and they wanted to sell all kinds of stuff to the chinese it is the americans who vetoed this israeli move the americans prevented israel from taking such a relationship further and making it a big relationship because the americans know what the Chi- by that time the americans had understood what china's real objectives are the chinese objective is to replace and displace the us as the global superpower so that would be a big threat to the us if israeli technology made its way into chinese hands but apparently it looks like this aircraft's technology had already made its way into the chinese hands so most likely the israelis supplied their lavi aircraft technology blueprints designs whatever it was to the chinese of course for a fee and that's how the chinese were able to develop this j10 aircraft so the israelis were very interested in china when the chinese market was off limits to them because of their american masters that's when they developed this 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 good relationship with india because india is also a huge market for defense equipment and india and israel are cooperating to a large extent right now in in a variety of ways in in terms of defense equipment but their original objective their orig- or, original goal was to uh get into the chinese market so that's how you see this uncanny resemblance between these two very different aircraft Swarup says the Ministry of Defence has added 101 additional items to its list of defence related equipment that cannot be imported from foreign countries. This is the third list issued by the ministry pushing the overall tally of such equipment to 310. Import restrictions for def- on defence equipment are aimed to promote the indigenous defence manufacturing sector in india these items will henceforth be procured from local sources as per the provisions of defence acquisition procedure dap 2020 your thoughts very good 
I have always been saying that India needs to completely indigenize its defense sector. All of our defense equipment, whether it is whether it is rifles, light rifles, AK-47 type rifles, or heavy machine guns, anti-aircraft guns, Bofors type uh, weaponry, aircraft, submarines, ships, whatever it is, or life, um, and what is it? Bulletproof vests, whatever it is, all of it needs to be manufactured in India. When you import equipment from others, there are all kinds of strings and conditions attached. Yesterday, in the other podcast, I spoke about how lots of this, these, this equipment can be remote controlled by the original equipment manufacturer. Certain features can be disabled on demand, on command, and you may be left with a, a piece of equipment or aircraft or whatever that doesn't work, that doesn't do what you need it to do. So it is very important. It's very important for India to completely indigenize its defense manufacturing industry. Everything needs to be manufactured in India. So these steps that are currently being taken by the government of India are a welcome move and a very important move in that direction. So I think it's a very good thing that the government is doing and it needs to be continued further over the years in a step-by-step manner, in a phased deployment manner. You first take a number of things that you can already manufacture in India and make it uh, and prohibit any import of that. Then wait for a few years and wait for your industry to mature. Then a whole other set of items can now be manufactured in India. So you prohibit the import of that. So you do that step-by-step over a few years and then eventually in the next two decades, hopefully you have a completely indigenous defense industry that can actually export weapons and weapon systems to other countries, which would be a great source of revenue and foreign exchange and, and, and it would boost India's GDP. So that is the overall objective. Hopefully in the next two decades, in the next 20 years, we can completely indigenize our defense industry, which would be fantastic. Wenzel says, thank you for all this information. Great podcast. Looking to more. Looking forward to more. Thank you, sir. Your thoughts on India having only one nuclear submarine. Should India and France form an alliance to develop nuclear, nuclear submarines, which would be a great advantage for the Indian Navy? Um, as of today, so we had this nuclear submarine called the INS Chakra on lease, on a 10-year lease from Russia. It's an Akula-class nuclear submarine. And uh, that's the second Akula-class, that, in at least the second, I think, that uh, India had taken on a 10-year lease. That's been given back to Russia. It was rather old. It served its purpose. So that nuclear sub is now gone. Will we take another nuclear sub from the Russians on lease? That remains to be seen. Do we have any operational nuclear submarines? We have the INS Arihant, which is fully deployed, which is fully operational. And we also have the INS Arighat, which may or may not be fully operational, fully deployed. It was undergoing sea trials and all that, which means it was already capable of uh, sailing in the sea, under the, under the sea. It was undergoing extended, extensive sea trials. Now, has it been operationalized or not? We don't quite know. Maybe it has. Maybe it's not been operationalized. Maybe it will be announced in the future that it was operational from so-and-so date, the way it was done with the INS Arihant. So as far as I see it, we most likely have two operational nuclear submarines. So what are the capabilities of these submarines? They have 
indigenous nuclear reactors within them which power them and that essentially gives your submarine the ability to stay submerged indefinitely for months on end now it depends on the specifics of your submarine your, your technology the maturity and all that every new submarine that we build will be an iterative improvement on the previous submarine so we had the INS Arihant which had a certain size certain capability the INS Arighat will be an iterative improvement upon the INS Arihant so the exact dimensions of the new submarine the Arighat are classified they have not been revealed to the press to the world and its weapons capabilities all are also kind of not completely clearly known which is a good thing so the INS Arihant can um, carry a certain number of K what is it there are two classes of K missiles one is a medium range missile and one is a long range missile so I think the INS Arihant is capable of carrying a certain number of those medium range Sagarika missiles the INS Arighat can also carry a, a similar number possibly of those missiles and possibly an enhanced range long range version of those missiles which have been under development apparently for a few years maybe they have been deployed we don't know and we should not know about this that at this stage so as far as i am concerned we have two deployed operational nuclear submarines at various stages of deployment so that to some extent completes our nuclear triad the question is should india and france form an alliance to develop nuclear submarines we already have the technology now we already have two nuclear subs that are in the ocean are operational so we don't need uh, a transfer of technology from the french the french have a mature nuclear submarine program they have been using nuclear submarines for for years for decades so have the russians the russians have actually in a variety of ways helped india with the nuclear submarine technology especially the miniaturization of the nuclear reactor it's perfectly easy to create a large big bloaty wheeled or unwieldy nuclear reactor that takes up a lot of space but to have the same nuclear reactor the same power output in a miniaturized design that is where you need advances in technology and that is apparently where Russia has helped India with the miniaturization of nuclear reactor technology so that you can take a nuclear reactor, which is a powerful nuclear reactor, and fit it inside a submarine. So India now has the technology. Of course, it is still a work in progress. Every new nuclear sub we build will have an improved version of the reactor and various other things. So I think India is doing very well. India doesn't need help from anybody else at this stage now. Uh, so we, we have a good relationship with France. It's You could call it a strategic relationship. The French are part of NATO, but they are not a US vassal state. They have their own independent foreign policy, which the Americans don't like very much. But th that's just how it is. So India and France have a very good relationship, very cordial relationship. Our strategic interests align to a large extent our national interests align to a significant extent especially in the indo-pacific region france whether you know it or not is a major indian ocean military power france has multiple indian ocean possessions which means islands that are part of france so it is beneficial for france to cooperate with, with india and vice versa so we have 
cooperation, military cooperation, strategic cooperation at various levels with the French. The most visible aspect of which is the acquisition of Rafale fighter aircraft. So we could explore certain cooperation when it comes to technology, whether whether it is jet engine technology or something else. But as far as the nuclear program, nuclear submarine program goes, India is already on the right track. It will take time, maybe 10, 20 years for us to have a much more mature nuclear submarine program. But unless we do the trial and error right now, that won't happen. So we are on the right track. We need to continue on that. Okay, Arnab says, I'm a master's student, economics with a keen interest in geopolitics. I have a few Chinese friends. They are good people. Yeah, yeah, of course, Chinese are good people. I have nothing against the Chinese people. I have known Chinese people. They're all nice people. Uh, our discussions become a bit awkward when we discuss politics. I defend my country in all aspects, but I lose in one certain point. They say, Arnab, you say India had a glorious ancient past, was one of the richest nations in terms of wealth, culture, and so on. But why is India so poor nowadays? And I don't have a counter-argument. Why, Arnab? <laughs> why don't you have a counter-argument? So as an economic student, I know our situation in poverty, and I cannot pull, put all the blame on the invaders and colonizers. I'd like to hear your take on why we are so dread, dreadfully bad, whilst our ancestors were so amazingly great. Do you think the Rishis would be proud of us seeing us in our present condition? They would not be proud of us. Now, let's see why we are in the situation. You look at the GDP of India as a percentage of the world's GDP. It was up to, it was at least 33% of the entire world's GDP ahead of China until the 1700s. And then it crashes precipitously. What happened? The British destroyed India's economy. They destroyed India's industrial system. India was the first industrialized civilization in the world. They destroyed all of India's indigenous industri industries, everything. And they took all of our treasure, our wealth, our gold, everything of value back to England. And they destroyed India in every single way. That is why India is so poor. You may have the richest cult culture. If you don't have a correspondingly powerful military that can defend your culture, then that culture, having that great culture is pointless. So yes, we were rich, but we there came a time when India was politically disunited, fragmented, like I have spoken about in the past, even today. And that's why foreigners were able to invade and occupy us and destroy our economy. So it's very simple. Why can't you put the blame on what really happened? It is because the invaders and colonizers destroyed India. Our ancestors did not have political unity at the time and that's why this happened. But it is these invaders and colonizers who destroyed India thoroughly. It is completely on them what happened. The genocide of a hundred million Indians plus by the British. It's a known fact. You just add up the, the tally of the famines that they engineered year after year after year. That itself is going to give you a figure close to 100 million, plus 10 million that they killed after 1857, in the, in the years after 1857. So overall, they killed more than 100 million Indians, at least 100 million. And they destroyed the entire economy. They destroyed the industry, the various indigenous industries, and they took away all the wealth. And that's why the West is prosperous. They are enjoying the fruits of the wealth they stole from India. And from England, that wealth dispersed all across Europe and the US. Have you heard of Yale University? Yale. The guy after whom the university is named was an East India Company official in India. He plundered a lot of wealth 
it became his personal fortune. And that was the basis of the Yale College, which is now Yale University. So a lot of the wealth that was stolen from India made its way into North America and built what is now known as, as the United States and parts of Canada and so on. So that's what happened. That is why India is so poor. And after, 18, after 1947, the government that was put in place was not a democratically elected government. It was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. And the system that we have in India after 1947 is the same as the British Raj system. The laws are the same. The language is the same. The bureaucracy is the same. The institutions are the same. So it's like we are still colonized. So India could have risen very rapidly after 1947. It did not happen because we had the great, magnificent Sri Jawaharlal Nehru in place. And he is not a re reflection of the people of India. He was undemocratically put in place as the Prime Minister of India. So what happened is not something that was in the, in the hands of the people of India. Now China is very different from India, so nice, blah, blah, blah. They were very, very lucky that the people who conquered their lands did not have the evil, pernicious, malicious mindset of the Westerners and the Turks. Had Chinggis Khan wanted to extract all wealth out of China, China would be way be behind India today. He would have done such a thorough job of extracting wealth out of China, there would have been nothing left in China. But he chose not to do that. It was his magnanimity that saved China and enriched China. So had the Mongols had a colonial mindset, then Mongolia would be the richest country in the world today. But they're not. You see, that's what happened. So the Chinese were invaded multiple times, but they got really lucky that the Mongols did not destroy China the way the Turks and the British destroyed India. There was this period of humiliation, the Chinese called it the hundred years, the century of humiliation, when Western powers did certain nasty activities in China. Well, again, the Chinese got lucky that the Western powers were not able to thoroughly colonize China. Things, events, that happened in the world prevented the Western powers from colonizing China the way they colonized India. Again, if the West had colonized China the way they colonized India, China would have been in the same situation that India is in right now. So the Chinese, if they are currently in a better position than India, it's because of dumb luck, nothing else. They are in no way superior to India. Indian culture has enriched them for 2000 years. India has exported culture. India has been a net exporter of culture to China. India civilized China to a large extent, whether you like it or not. So that is what you need to tell your Chinese friends, my dear friend, Arnab. Okay, Anish says, Indians never invaded any country ever. How true is this statement? Is it a way of making Indians weak? Is it something to be proud of? And so on and so forth. And in the future, should it remain the same? as if it is our obligation to not invade a country. <laughs> uh, have you heard of Kanishka the Great? Many people say he was Chinese. What nonsense. What utter nonsense. He did more than any other emperor, almost any other emperor, to promote and enrich India and Indian culture in 
an incredible variety of ways. So he was one of our greatest emperors. They did not invade and conquer the whole of Central Asia. His kingdom stretched from the Aral Sea to the Caspian Sea into all of Northern India and Western India and Eastern India and parts of the Deccan Plateau as well. Then he also invaded what is now called as Xinjiang in China and reconquered the territory of his ancestors because that's where his ancestors lived a few centuries before. They were the Indo-European or Indian origin Tushara people, Tokarians, Kushans. So India invaded all these lands. What's wrong with that? Look at the great emperor Lalitaditya Muktapida. Did he not conquer Central Asia again? Did he not conquer Bahalika, Balk and uh, parts of Tibet? He did. So once again, Indians invaded and conquered. What about the great Cholas? First, Raja Raja Chola who conquered Sri Lanka. Old Sri Lanka has always been part of India anyway, but today it's not part of India. So he went and conquered that, that island and he conquered parts, uh, some other parts of Burma, etc. And then his son, Rajendra Chola, who conquered the whole of Southeast Asia all the way up to the Philippines. Right? So were they not Indians? So these claims that India never invaded any country, they are absolute bunkum. I could go back before the Mauryan era also and you have the so-called Yamnaya invaders whose genes are found all across Eastern, Western, Central Europe. Every European more or less is a descendant of these Indian origin invaders. So that is all nonsense that India has never invaded any, any, any country. There are so many examples of Indian invasions in, in other lands. And is it our obligation to not invade a country in the future? No. I believe when the time is right, India should invade other countries when there are just causes for war. When you have just causes for war, then war is justifiable. Like when the Pakistanis attacked India in 1971, when they launched bombing raids via their so-called air force in 1971, that gave India a just cause for going to war with Pakistan. And that's when 1971 happened and Bangladesh was liberated. So whenever there is a just cause for war or whenever it suits our national interest, we should invade. I think it is in the coming years and decades, it, India needs a couple of wars because Indians have this attitude or this 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 loser mentality. We need a couple of wars and victories to get rid of that attitude. So I think in the future, it should happen. It needs to happen. But when there is a reasonable, justifiable cause for war, or when it is something that suits, that, that is in line with India's national interest, I am by no means a warmonger. I would love nothing more than global peace and bhaichara, vasudeva kutumbakam and all that thing. But that, that's not how the world works. I am also a realistic person. So that's what I what I have to say about this. Animish says, is it true that ancient Dharmic people did not believe in right written form of documentation? Uh, they had auditory learning, smriti methods to be passed from one generation to another. Script came very late in our civilization, which is actually non-Dharmic. <laughs> so that's what some people say. Uh, in a recent argument, I tried to cite the reference of the horse training man manual by Kikuli. But my point was, rule out. Who ruled out your point? Bring them to me. 
So my point was ruled out by saying 3,500 years old inscription is too recent for our civilization. Your thoughts? See, our civilization is very old. Yeah, three and a half thousand years ago, if something happened, it is very recent, of course. In the grand scale, in the grand chronology of India's civilization, that's true. Now, this claim that people make that India did not believe in written documentation, do they have any evidence for this? No. Of course, there are very few records that you find in India of ancient writings and all. We have the Saraswati Sindhu script, which is very ancient, 5,000 years old or so, maybe more. So that is one example of documentation of some inscriptions, but that doesn't, we still don't know what it says. So you could kind of say, we still don't know what it is. So let's not consider that. And again, Kikuli's horse training manual in, C in present day Syria, which is written in the local language with certain terms in Sanskrit, because those terms were not available in the local language. It tells you that it was a guy who whose native language was, was Sanskrit, but it's, it's only three and a half thousand years old. And that's in Syria, it's not in India. So it is Indians who live there, so it doesn't matter. It is, it is not uh, applicable again. So what is true? See, first of all, when the Greeks came to the court of Chandragupta Maurya, they noticed, and they have noted this, they have recorded this, that the Indians had a calendar that went back 6,000 something years before that time. So the Mauryan era was, let's say, roughly 2,500 years before today. Add another 6,000 years to that. That is 8,500 years before today. That's how old the calendar was. And Indians had recorded written lineages of kings that dated back to that time. That is 8,500 years before today. So is that not something that was documented at the time. We have lost the records today. But we have the documented evidence from the Greeks who said they have seen these records and these records existed. So there is one piece of evidence that totally demolishes this claim that Indians did not believe in, the, in any documentation. Secondly, you have so many translations that are available in Chinese, in Tibetan, in present-day which were which were discovered in parts of China, in parts of present-day Xinjiang region of, of so-called of, of China, Chinese-occupied region in present-day Tibet, in other parts of Central Asia. You have so many translations of ancient Indian texts that have been that have been discovered in all these regions north of India. These were translations from Sanskrit of older texts, right? So that tells you that there was a copious amount of Sanskrit literature whether it is Buddhist literature or, or Hindu literature or Jain literature, doesn't matter. This was all the civilizational corpus of ancient India that the Chinese, the Tibetans were so deeply interested in that they translated all of that into, into, into Chinese and uh, into the Gandhari language, which was prevalent in Central Asia and so on. So that again demonstrates there were, that there were written records, doc documentations of, of various things. And we also know that India had great universities all across the length and the breadth of the Indian subcontinent. Right, we know Nalanda, Takshashila. Nalanda is in the far east, Takshashila is in the far west, and so many more. Vikramashila, Odantapuri, um, Sharda Peet, and, and many, 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 many more. Too many to, to, to uh, recount over here. 
and we also know that, that the Turks destroyed all of these universities and burned all of the libraries. The university library at Nalanda is known to have burned for months. So what, what was burned there? Was it not documentation that was burned? Right? So based on all of these facts that we know about, one can conclude that Indians had extensive documentation that dated back thousands of years. What was burned in those fires a thousand years before today was the records of thousands of years of Indian history and science and much more. So we had documentation. It was destroyed by the Turks. We are left with very little today. Even today in various temples and all, there are all these palm leaf, palm leaf manuscripts and other manuscripts that are still gathering dust. They have not been preserved. They are all under the ASI, which is doing nothing. They should have been dig digitized and preserved through some means. So there are millions of manuscripts that still exist, which is all ancient documentation. So these claims are worthless. These claims are all false. They're all lies. We have still, even today, millions of records of ancient documentation, which nobody has even looked into. Who knows how old these records are? Some of them could be thousands of years old, possibly, potentially. We will know only when these records are, 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 are deciphered, they're analyzed, and their carbon dating or whatever is done. Then we'll know. So why is all of this not being done? And th that is the reason why all of these misconceptions continue until today. Okay. Pushpendra says, are there infinitely many prime numbers? Yes, there are infinitely many prime numbers. And this can be proven using school level mathematics. I will not prove it here because I don't have a whiteboard or whatever. But it can be proven that there are infinitely many prime numbers using school level mathematics. There are a multiple, there are a multitude of ways of proving this, but you can do it with school level mathematics as well. So the answer is yes, there are infinitely many prime numbers. Pratishwar says, you have educated us on the topic of power and leadership a few times now. Can you please expand further on this topic? Uh, people say money is power, but is money really power? If a person, if a person has more money, does it mean he or she is more powerful? Can a person with decent money become powerful? These are interesting questions, right? Uh, is a good amount of money a must for a person to become powerful? Basically, what is the... Oh, sorry. Basically, what's the real difference in relation between power and money, which people misunderstand quite a lot? So, this is a complicated topic. Power is completely different from money. Money is currency. Money is something that represents a certain kind of value which can be used to acquire materials, goods, services, even power. So you may have a lot of money. It doesn't mean that you have power. Power is different. Power means power means the cooperation of people, not just cooperation, obedience of people. It is that obedience of people that creates power. Look at any dictator, king, emperor, queen, whatever in the world, politician of today. Where does their power come from? It comes from the fact that people will obey them and do what, what, what is being told. That is where power comes from. So you can buy power 
if you already have some power, you can buy more power with money. There are certain rules in power, certain secrets in power. So imagine that you are, let's say, hypothetically, a Saddam Hussein kind of dictator. You have a country that you are a dictator of. How do you maximize your power? You have to depend on other people for power. Whether it is Saddam Hussein, whether it is Kim Jong-un, whether it is Xi Jinping, whether it was Julius Caesar, whether it was Alexander the Tyrant, whoever these powerful people were, their power, they had no power without the obedience of other people. So how do you acquire more power? There are certain secrets. Let me go into a couple of these secrets. First secret is must depend on as few possible, as few people as possible. If you want to maximize your power, you will need a certain number of indispensable people who will be your enforcers, who will do the things you need them to do. For instance, Mohandas Gandhi had an enforcer. His name was Vallabhbhai Patel. Patel was the enforcer of Gandhi, the guy who did all the organizational activities and kept the Congress party minions in line. He was the enforcer. He was the iron discipline man. He did the organization on all those activities. So Mohandas Gandhi depended on Vallabhbhai Patel for this enforcement and organizational activity. So one guy was enough for Gandhi. He, didn't, he did not need 15 people to do that. Only one guy was enough. And Patel would have a number of his own chosen few people who would do the work for, the, for him. That's how it works. It's an organizational hierarchy. So the first rule of power is you must depend on as few people as possible, the indispensable people. But the number of the group of people you can really trust, make it as large as possible. That is the second rule of power, right? And there are other things as well. So all of this has nothing to do with money. It has to do with how you deal with people and how you organize your power structure. Now, the second point that I spoke about, that depend on... The, the group that you are that is loyal to you, the group that they, the, of people you can trust, make it as large as possible. In that, money can come in. You can buy loyalty and obedience with money in that big group. But the small group, you cannot buy it with money. For that, you need a certain shared ideology or shared purpose. But it's a complicated thing. I am just skimming the surface of how it is. So that's how power works. That's how politics works. You will understand if you get deep into it someday. So that's what I can say. All right, that brings me to the end of today's session. It's almost two hours. Thank you very much for all the questions. I have so many other questions that I've not taken up. Hopefully, we'll keep doing this and I will take some more questions next time. But for today, this is the end of today's session. Thank you very much, everybody, for your questions, for your viewership, for your support. And we will keep doing this. I will see you in next week's session. Thank you. Take care. Good night. Good day. Bye.